Managing digital assets requires the efforts of the whole enterprise. The 2023 issue of the Data Security Incident Response Report, or the DSIR, includes more content than ever regarding the data ecosystem and how companies can best manage their digital assets as they move through the life cycle of data. The DSIR, of course, dives deep into the annual incident response trends and analytics our clients and friends depend on. It also covers topics such as global privacy, ad tech, the increase in litigation, healthcare privacy and compliance, and the latest in emerging technology. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. We're back with a deeper dive series covering key topics in this year's DSIR. On today's episode, we discuss recent litigation targeting the higher ed industry, specifically privacy litigation and the VPPA. Our guests are Ben Wanger, counsel with the Digital Risk Advisory and Cybersecurity Team, and Joel Griswold, partner with the Privacy and Digital Risk Class Action and Litigation Team. Welcome to the show, Ben and Joel. Thanks. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm happy to be here. Ben, let's start with you. Could you tell us what are the current trends that you're noticing in the higher ed industry regarding incidents that include privacy litigation and data breaches? Sure. There's three current trends that we're really seeing. The first is that ransomware is, as always, a big issue that affects higher education. I think one of the things about ransomware in higher education that's different than a lot of industries is, whereas personal information is important and it's something that would trigger notice, I think what is really worrisome to higher education and to these universities is their research data. And they have a lot of sensitive data that really they do could cause a lot of problems if that data gets out in the public and their ability to operate. I mean, if a university goes down, the effects of that could go very deep and a lot of people could be affected. Another current trend we're seeing are kind of laws related to ransomware. Uh, one state, North Carolina, has issued a law banning all state entities, including public universities, from even negotiating or paying ransoms. So whereas that's really limited to North Carolina now. I mean, Florida has a similar law, but that law carves out universities. But I, I think the bigger takeaway is, is that laws like this are kind of being considered. So at least for public universities, there is a trend where they are needing to focus more on putting themselves in a position where they wouldn't need to pay a ransom in the future because their ability to pay a ransom could be somewhat questionable. And the third trend is was litigation. Uh, we are seeing a, a large increase in litigation kind of arising from data breaches. And especially where there's a university that is kind of a, a big name, that will pique the interest of plaintiff lawyers. And we are seeing much more litigation than we saw in the past. Ben, where are the universities struggling? So I think there are three issues or three areas where universities are struggling in the instance of data breaches. The first one, and a lot of companies have this issue, is kind of knowing exactly what data they have and where the crown jewels are located. In higher education, especially in research universities, data is often spread out meaning not everybody knows what everybody else is researching. So kind of in the event of an incident, there's a lot of scrambling to find out kind of where the important data is and how it was protected. So one of the things that we always encourage universities to do is as best they can start trying to figure out exactly where they are most vulnerable, 
where their pressure points are and where their important data is. And kind of by knowing that, they can take steps to protect that data. So hopefully they won't be in a situation where that data kind of is getting out. And another area where universities are kind of always facing tension is in messaging. I mean, universities generally pride themselves in transparency and communicating as much as possible. But oftentimes in ransomware or data breaches, communication is not always beneficial. I mean, frankly, first of all, if you're negotiating a ransom, sometimes you can give leverage to the threat actors if you're communicating too much. And second of all, it takes time to get all the information. We don't have all the answers right away. And that is often contrary to universities way of thinking of they want to over-communicate. So a lot of times we find ourselves working with universities to kind of balance that need for transparency with making sure that they're not kind of over-communicating too early and risking saying something that may not turn out to be accurate. And the last area that I see some universities struggling is in the process and decision-making in the event of these incidents. Oftentimes, there are so many people with kind of co-equal authority that there are questions about who is responsible for deciding certain things. So I think kind of making sure that they can nail down that process in advance is very helpful for universities. So when the event that an incident occurs, they know exactly who's responsible for what decisions. Ben, why do you think this industry in particular has been targeted? So I'm not sure that they're being targeted per se, In 2022, kind of as we wrote in our DSIR, higher education matters accounted for about 9% of the cybersecurity incidents that we saw. I think that number will go up significantly in 2023. But I think the reason that we see a lot of universities that are falling victims to these incidents is universities by design have an open infrastructure. I mean, if you liken kind of a computer network to a house, they have a lot of windows and doors because they have a lot of different people who are kind of accessing the network. And I think it's not surprising that they're more likely to have one of those windows and doors cracked open, which allows a threat actor to get into their environment. And also these universities have a lot of data. So when the threat actor gets in, there's a lot of data that to be taken. And a lot of it is sensitive data. So I think that makes them attractive to these threat actors. And then finally, universities have a lot of stakeholders. There are a lot of people who notice when something is wrong at a university, whether the systems are down or when the university is sending out a notice letter. And I think that makes them, it makes their pain points much more obvious to threat actors, which I think once they get into the system, it makes them eager to exploit those pain points. Thanks, Ben. Joel? Will you provide our listeners with an overview of privacy litigation, specifically the VPPA? Uh, Sure. So what we've been witnessing really over the last year and a half, two years, has been pretty much an all-out full-scale war on the internet that's been waged by the plaintiff's bar. What they're essentially doing is trying to take old statutes and old theories of tort law and apply it to new technology that clearly wasn't contemplated when statutes or common law causes of action were originally recognized. And specifically what they're doing is is taking a look at 
what pixels are being used by various companies on their websites and what information is being allegedly transmitted to ad tech companies or ad companies like the various large social media companies that are out there, for instance. So the Video Privacy Protection Act or the VPPA is one uh, of these battles that's being waged. And the VPPA was uh, a statute that was passed back in 1988 and really in response to Judge Bork having his family's video rental history being obtained and then disclosed by a media outlet um, in an attempt to, I guess, embarrass him or vet him during his Supreme Court confirmation hearings. So in that context, it was clear that this statute was really meant to apply to, you know, brick and mortar, traditional video rental chains that we all, I think, remember fondly and have since kind of ceased to become a major industry. The statute itself applies to videotape service providers. And that basically means, or is defined to mean, any person engaged in the business in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce of the rental sale or delivery of pre-recorded video cassette tapes or similar audiovisual materials. Now, we've seen a wide range of defendants being sued under the VPPA, everything from restaurants to retail to not-for-profits. Really, it's been, it's been a pretty broad range of industries that's been hit. And the case law recently has been kind of, I think, trying to clarify what it means to be a videotape service provider. And at least one case has acknowledged that it's, you really need to be a business that's centered, tailored, or focused around providing and delivering audiovisual content, as opposed to just having video that's part of your brand awareness campaign and is included a website. But again, plaintiffs are continuing to try to push the theory that unless notice and consent has been given separate and apart from anything in a policy or terms and conditions. And the defendant has pixel on their website in a way that communicates information about the subject matter or the title of the video to any ad tech company, then that company is allegedly in violation of VPPA. That's the theory that they're continuing to pursue. And it hasn't just been against higher ed. We've seen some higher ed institutions sued, but we've seen a really a broad spectrum. Joel, what outcomes have you seen recently in VPPA cases? Well, I think at the outset of these this pixel theory of liability, we saw a fair number of, of courts denying motions to dismiss and really denying them on the basis that defendants have been challenging what was being disclosed or whether it was being disclosed. And in support of those arguments had been attaching uh, declarations and information that was extraneous to the complaint. So Courts were reluctant to grant motions to dismiss at the outset, opting rather to let these cases proceed to discovery and then maybe summary judgment. But what we've seen uh, recently has been some courts willing to dismiss cases 
based on a couple different theories. One is that the defendant isn't truly a, a videotape service provider as defined in the statute. And uh, two, that the plaintiff isn't really a consumer as defined in the statute. A consumer means basically any renter, purchaser, or subscriber of goods or services from a videotape service provider. And courts have basically said, hey, it's not enough to be a subscriber or, for instance, a rewards member of a company where your subscription or membership doesn't afford you access to video content above and beyond what a member of the general public would be entitled to. So it has to be consumption of video by virtue of your subscription, not just I'm a subscriber or rewards member and I've consumed a good from this, this company that's completely you know, separate and apart from any video that they may have watched just as a member of the general public. The courts have not gotten into the more factual issue about whether what's being disclosed is PII or whether it's being disclosed by the companies at all, or whether in fact it's being disclosed by the plaintiff's own browser settings. Those are, again, issues that we're, we're waiting to see rulings on, but I expect in the next year, we're going to start to see those trickle in. Thanks, Joel. As a final question for you, Ben, how can universities exercise best practices moving forward? So I think there's three things they can do. The first one is kind of work on knowing where their vulnerabilities are and where their pain points are. And that entails, again, knowing what your crown jewel data is. Where is your most important data? And again, that's much easier said than done. But I think by taking inventory of that, you're helping yourselves immensely. I mean, first of all, I mean, once you identify the most important and sensitive data you have, you can take additional steps to protect that data. Also, you can put yourself in a position where in the event of any incident, you know where to look to make sure that certain data is or is not involved. And I think along the line of what Joel said with the, the VPPA is kind of knowing what data you, you're getting making sure that if you are collecting data from kind of websites that you know you're doing that because whether that's something you should or shouldn't do i think making sure that you know what you are collecting will help you so otherwise you're apt to be surprised i think another thing that the universities can do is start developing kind of a messaging strategy in the event of these incidents because like i said that is a difficult area for them because it's so important to universities to be transparent with their communities. So I think thinking about how you are going to message in the event of an incident would save a lot of headaches on the, on the back end. And finally, just working on the process, making sure you develop an incident response plan that really calls out who's in charge of what and what steps need to be taken in the event of an incident would prevent and kind of alleviate a lot of that early chaos that occurs once you find out something's wrong. And one of the best ways to kind of once you have that plan is I would say practice it. Practice it with tabletop exercises because I think once you start developing that muscle memory, the, the process becomes much less chaotic and, and tends to go much more smoothly. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben and Joel. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for having us. 
If you have any questions for Ben or Joel, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.